As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show today. Liverpool wins something with kids. We salute their League Cup triumph with a lineup that was hotchpotch but still enough to beat Potch in a pretty enthralling watch. Elsewhere, Premier League. A bad weekend for Traffords. A busy one for people saying Iwobi, especially when talking about Ten Hag as Man United manager next season. And another big weekend for the Gunners' goal difference. We'll run up all the big talking points and more in this Totally Football Show. Sunday the 25th of February and a big hello to you, listener. It's a Totally Football Show today with Colin Miller. Hi, Colin. Hello, James. Hello there, alongside Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. Lovely to see you, Matt. Fresh back from the League Cup. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, of course, Daniel's story on the big screen. Fresh back from Molyneux, Daniel. Yeah, big game of the day. Why, yeah. why Molyneux? Uh, the trains to London were balked and it was an hour drive rather than a real faff drive. And we already have people that live in London. Very, Excellent. Very Excellent. Excellent. And you got to see uh, something we all enjoy, a bit of teammate on teammate slapping. I did. I didn't realise until half time that it had happened. But yeah, I went over Chris Wilder's quotes when he joined Sheffield United and said, I want players to start swinging punches. And I thought, well, you asked for it. Yeah, well, I think he was on board with it as well. He said after that's the kind of passion you want and other kind of managerial noises. Anyway, uh, Matt, what was your favourite bit of the weekend? Favourite bit of the weekend? Crikey, that's a bit of a stretch this weekend, James, really? for me in particular. And maybe not having a pint of Carabao Lager, that might be up there. Um, I saw that advertised yeah, on Carabao the screens beer. and I thought that sounds absolutely revolting. Um, Favourite bit of the weekend, I'll tell you what I did enjoy, was Marco Silva frantically appealing at the referee for a free kick in the build-up to the winning goal and then seeing that his team were in and changing from waving his arms in the air at the referee saying free kick to going... Go forward, go forward. Right. <laughs> I always, always quite enjoy that. Reminiscent of, uh, of another Portuguese manager, perhaps. Yeah, on that yeah. very same touchline. Mm. Colin, how about you? I think that Arsenal performance on Saturday night against Newcastle was was superb. It was just so enjoyable to watch as a as a neutral. It's just one of those games that showed Arsenal really come of age. Um, I think they're the best team in the Premier League right now. Probably best team pro- in the Premier League? Probably wider, wider than that as well. I just think they're playing so, so well. Not, not better than Porto, though. 
Not, not on that particular occasion. Mm. Um, the Premier League, Premier League since they've come back since the, their little winter break has been has been superb. So yeah, they they were fantastic. Um, not a bad bad, bad night for Newcastle, but not a lot of a lot of good games this weekend. Even the the League Cup final, despite its lack of goals, no shortage of entertainment. No, indeed not. All right, well let, let's begin today's roundup. We'll get onto the Premier League and of course events at Molyneux later. But we'll begin with Sunday afternoon at Wembley, and Liverpool won Chelsea nil. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. In by Final score at Wembley, pile of red joy one, blue billion pound bottle jobs nil, quoting Gary Neville there. Matt, you were covering this for Chelsea TV. Didn't go with the billion pound blue bottle jobs line. It was right there, but I thought, I just wonder if my employers will like this. (laughs) Well, we'll touch on your Chelsea thoughts later, Mm. but first of all, quite the triumph for this regen Liverpool lineup. Yeah, it was all about extra time, wasn't it? Because in the um, sort of final 10 minutes of regulation time, it looked a matter of when Chelsea would score or maybe mm. when Conor Gallagher would score. But um, Sam Parkin, my co-commentator, said the last thing that Chelsea want here is for the game to end because that's going to give Liverpool the chance to regroup. And I thought their substitutes were absolutely superb, whereas Chelsea's were almost totally ineffective. And that was kind of what swung it in the end. Incredible to see uh, players like Bobby Clark and McConnell and Dan's in particular, I thought was really effective um, up front. I, I loved the fact that there were three kids on the bench who, whose dads all played football. I think that's a really beautiful quirk of football. But over the course of the game, Liverpool had more of the ball. They had more shots, more shots on target. It was a pretty even contest, but it's such a missed opportunity for Chelsea. And I want to say it's great for Jurgen Klopp, but mm. I'm not sure how bothered about it he is. Oh, no, I really. think he looked. Well, he didn't he... turn up for his pre-match press conference, but um, yeah, good for him. There'll be more trophies on the way, I think, for Liverpool this season. I think you saw in the fact that he bought those players on that he did, he's got the Premier League on his mind more than he has winning the Carabao Cup. I think he was thinking, I don't want Alexis McAllister to get injured here right. and be out for a sustained period of time. Hmm. And I think it was more about that than bringing fresh legs on to try and win this game. Interesting. Um, but yeah, a- absolutely exceptional performances from... Several Liverpool players, but particularly the teenagers who came off the bench. Okay, and you'd add to that level, well, you'd feature in that list, I imagine, Virgil van Dijk, who was great at both ends, scored once, had it controversially disallowed after an hour, and then had the winner late on. You'd probably have the uh, the goalkeeper, Kelleher, in there yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and I think whenever you talk about the Liverpool average age being quite low, but Chelsea, I think Chelsea's end was actually slightly lower, but the difference between that was you've got these, these sort of teenagers, but you've got that experience alongside them whereas all season long we've pointed out Chelsea have sort of bought en masse these players in their early 20s and there's not really a it's not really a sort of good range of ages in there and I think that maybe showed a little bit in extra time that they just didn't really have any any leaders on the pitch they really as Matt said they really lost that impetus at full time because Chelsea looked like they were going to win that game didn't they and they had so many good opportunities and Liverpool were hanging on at the end but extra time it was completely completely different game and yeah, Liverpool's youngster is incredible, uh, and it shows you the opportunities that can come from injuries. It's not always necessarily the worst thing in the world. And for players like Conor Bradley, and obviously from a Northern Ireland perspective, I'd seen him play seven or eight games for Northern Ireland, and he looked—he always looked really like a really good talent, but he looked so raw. Whereas in these appearances for, for Liverpool, he, he looks like the real deal. And I know it's very early days, but for players like that, 
with very little sort of top level experiences to sort of step in and look so so comfortable and so at home in that team. It, mm. I think it really speaks volumes for the coaching that's going on, but also for the for the sort of unity and, and spirit within that squad. It doesn't you see a lot of a lot of teenagers coming in maybe like a little out of depth, but those players have really come in and stepped up. Okay, um, for exciting times. Spe- speaks to the value of quality. EFL loans as well because Conor Bradley had a season at Bolton where he played every week and was excellent mm. and, and that's allowed him to come in and be a, obviously at a much higher level but be a first team footballer without there being too much of an issue with that because he does have some experience of it. I think you're right James as well to mention Van Dyke because it was the Covid season wasn't it when he got his, his cruciate injury mm. and he was out for about a year and when he came back he really struggled for a long time and the narrative was always well, he's done, you know, he's, he's not a top level defender anymore. And he really seems to have turned that around. And, and at his age and after that injury, that's massive credit to him. I was, I was really surprised that that was the first time he's actually captained Liverpool to a trophy. Because you yeah. just think of him as a captain, David. Mm. Obviously, Henderson was was the skipper for most of the previous successes. 100%. When you mentioned this being a big opportunity for Chelsea, it's worth listing the players that were absent for Liverpool. Salah, Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Nunez, Jones, Schlobberslai, Allison, Jota, then Ryan Gravenberg going off after that challenge from Caicedo in, in the first half. Five teenagers, two of whom had never played for the club before, on the bench. Uh, pretty extraordinary stuff. And Chelsea uh, had two teenagers who've never played for the club before on the bench okay. as well. Um, and also, you know, didn't have Silva, Badish, Hilke, Corella, Chukwemeka, Fafana, James Lavia and Nugachukwu. So they do have injury problems too, but obviously Liverpool's were much more severe for this game. Fair enough, Matt. Uh, Daniel, at which point of this match did you uh, re-enter the, the game, as it were, on your way back from I Radio? got home after about 78 minutes. So okay. I sort of, yeah, I mean, I heard the rest so you saw the kind of quadruple Chelsea chance that somehow stayed out and also the Conor Gallagher the brilliant Keller save on on that and then this whopping switch in momentum this shift in intensity or or at least one side just lacking it in the extra time period would this be a finger that should be pointed at Pochettino when people salute the intensity which Klopp brings that that was so obviously lacking from Chelsea in in the extra time periods I think inevitably the the finger probably as always will at Chelsea goes higher up the food chain. I think what we saw was that talent and potential and transfer fee and reputation makes a difference. But more than anything, the environment in which you operate makes a difference. And look, Liverpool were wobbling until full time, no doubt about it. I thought Chelsea were going to score in those final five, six, seven minutes of injury time. But having given that team talk at full time to a group of young players, I think sometimes when they come on en masse, it can help because they don't feel overawed like I'm the kid surrounded by adults. They feel like, well, look, I'm going through exactly the same thing as as Dan's is and and Clark is and O'Connell is and we're all doing this together. I think that helps. But it also shows that when you come into that Liverpool team, you know what everybody else is doing. Everybody else knows their job. You just fit into a system that works. And that's what Chelsea don't have. And it doesn't matter if you bring on Mudrich and Madueke rather than two kids because the system wins. And if you're at Liverpool and you're good enough to come on off the bench in a cup final, you're a really, really talented young footballer. What you need is to feel confident and comfortable within the situation you arrive. And... After that initial wobble and after the team talk at full time, they did feel confident. They they realised they were perfectly capable of, of controlling the ball in the game. I mean, it makes sense in retrospect when you, when you say it now, but when Gravenberg went off and when Klopp started to bring those players on, I, I don't think many people thought, well, this is going to be Liverpool's game. Yeah, I think if you look at the starting 11s, you sort of thought Liverpool 
with the substitute bench, they had a real opportunity to win it in the first half. I thought they were the better team in that first half, and then obviously the Gravenberg Liverpool. Injury. Yeah, I thought I thought mm. so. I thought they started much much the brighter side. They they looked like the team who were sort of like at home in a, in a cup final. Obviously, they've had a, they've had a couple of them in, in recent years. Whereas Chelsea kept trying to play out from the back, but you could tell that there were nerves there. You could tell the players were losing their footing. They they just weren't getting to the ball in time. I thought Moises Casado in particular was it just 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 looked a shadow of him for himself um but I th- but I thought then after the break and then Chelsea started to come back into it and then it was whenever those kids started coming on for Liverpool and they they I guess the thing is they're unknown quantities still right you don't really know how to how to play against them you're not really sure exactly how how their games are whereas when you look at players like Mudrick or Madueke you know you've already got an understanding of what what they're going to do, and 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 at the same time as well, the the flip side of this is that those two players in particular, just just for the fact that they've come on, they're still both very young, but they've had really difficult years, having come in for big transfer fees into a club who really struggled. And as Daniel said, it's about the environment that you're in. They're not in an environment which is a conducive to, to good results and winning. For them personally, they've they've sort of suffered a little bit more than other players. They've been sidelined. They've maybe been scapegoated at times a little bit, partly because of the big fees, the big expectations, but just not really having a place in that squad. Whereas if you're from the Liverpool young, you, you've just come through the academy. You maybe had a loan out when you've come back, but you're having this sort of natural progress. And this is now the sort of moment of your career and you're full of adrenaline and you're really up for it. And I thought... That really showed an extra time, but yeah, the it's just the fact that they had so many players out injured and they keep adapting just to do enough to win. And this game really could have gone either way. I think Chelsea did get a bit of luck with with the goal and being disallowed, albeit it was probably technically the correct decision, but it's always the consistency, is that going to keep happening or not? I think that's what annoys fans. Chelsea themselves had the goal disallowed for offside, which was which was marginal. So just just on that, yeah. on the on the endo uh, involvement, which led to the first Van Dyke header being disallowed. It's not that that was a foul. It's the fact that him participating in that block meant that he was active in his offside because he started from an offside position. It wasn't that he was blown for a foul. And yes, that happens on every yeah. corner. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And and that was almost what was confusing people because um, for UK viewers, Mike Dean, former referee, was on commentary or as a sort of official analysis coming in. And he's like, oh, this couldn't possibly be um, for, for any offside because nobody was offside. It was for a foul. And it wasn't a foul at all. It was the fact that he actually was offside. And as you say, James, that he was he was then sort of in Colwell's way, kind of very obviously, without actively fouling him and kind of think, is that then sufficient to deem... Has he actually... Uh, interfered with play. I mean, he obviously has on one level, but you're sort of then getting into these scenarios which are kind of theoretical. Would Colwell have gotten back in time to block Van Dyke's header? Mm. I'm I'm not sure. I could look at that a hundred times and still not be sure. So that I guess that kind of annoys people as well when they're looking again yeah. at VAR decisions. But this is this is like the era of VAR, whereby you've got these marginal decisions which go to this, and then people get upset about it, and people complain. Even I, I was complaining about about the kind of the kind of scrutiny on officials in general. But that being said, I do think that Chelsea really had a huge opportunity here. I just think the lack of intent and extra time is if you're a Chelsea fan, yeah. that would really hurt because the ninety could have gone either way. But the period that followed looked very much like Liverpool's. Daniel, I know you're unwilling to point a finger at at Potch, (laughs) given the environment within which he works. But let's celebrate, you know, because it's one of of the few opportunities we'll have left, celebrate Jurgen Klopp and the incredible spirit that he clearly has built there. Yeah, absolutely. And and this was the perfect ending. I agree with Matt that I don't think he he threw on all the kids to say, well, if we win it now, it'll look like we're building the next generation just as I leave because these beautiful boys are going to win the trophy for Liverpool. But 
that's kind of how it ended up. That will be the headline tomorrow, that it won't be Van Dijk's header. It will be that Liverpool had all these teenagers on the pitch and still were able to get over the line because there's this kind of inherent Klopp DNA that they believe runs through the club. And if if they believe it, it kind of becomes self-fulfilling. If, if those young players go on the pitch thinking, my manager trusts me and I'm good enough to do this job and it's only Moses like Heisadio and he hasn't really played well this season, so let's not worry... Um, yeah, it works. It makes them believe it and it does set them up for the next era. You know, not all of those players are going to end up as Anfield stalwarts, but they will always be Anfield, you know, they will always be Liverpool trophy winners and that does leave a legacy. Magnificent. I think I think one, one point as well to make is that Liverpool had only won one domestic trophy in nine years before Klopp came in um, and that was that Cardiff City final and mm. they only just about sort of scraped over the line in that one in penalties and like it goes to show, doesn't it, that there's a that there's a cultures can come in in these clubs, no, no matter how how big you are. And yeah, Man United, of course, as well recently. But for Liverpool, maybe even having won enough trophies under Klopp, considering how good they have been, they, mm. that that will be the regret whenever he leaves. It, there really should have been more. Obviously, you've got Man City as well in that time, but. These, I think these moments, certainly from fans' point of view, I mean, you could see fan celebrations after that game. I mean, that, like, there's nothing beats when it went in a cup final from that point of view. And I think if you're Klopp as well and bringing on those young players, that was the narrative that even if they had have lost, that would have still been the narrative, right? Oh, of course Chelsea were going to win that. And I guess, that's, again, just the final point, this is that shows the difference that Liverpool obviously had all these kids on, whereas Chelsea have sort of prioritised selling all their youngsters to fund the players that they had on, which who just couldn't get the job done. So, Daniel? I, I mean, I, I know you said I, I don't want to have a go at Pochettino, and I, I do think the problems are bigger than him, but there's a quote from him at the end of the game in which he says the team felt maybe that penalties would be good for them, which is why they didn't push as hard in extra time. And that... To be honest, that is the difference between the two managers there because I, I don't think you would ever get Klopp saying at that moment, yeah, we thought maybe we would win on penalties. Well, so not even we, we the team really... thought. Yeah, he says the team felt maybe that penalties would yeah. be good for us, which, I mean, is... is Look, he's, he's hurting after the final. Mm. I'm sure he will be annoyed at how they manage that extra time and he's kind of defending the extra time performance, but that isn't good enough. And sometimes that is the difference if you've got a manager who already has won big trophies and believes in uh, a kind of progressive attacking mentality to do it and a kind of throw caution to the wind because we've got other trophies we can win. I just think, you know, that does make a difference in the mind of players. Now, Chelsea, the first team ever to lose six major English domestic cup finals in a row. Last Chelsea manager to win one was Antonio Conte. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, 2018 against Man United in the FA Cup final. And, and now... The FA Cup is massive for Maurizio Pochettino. Yeah. You know, we go. Who have you got? It's Leeds. It's Leeds. <clears throat> yeah, won twelve of thirteen games in twenty twenty four. Have Leeds They've twelve got a, of thirteen? A, a front four that you know is Premier League quality. They are excellent. Is, just, is that at Ellen, Ellen Road? No, it's at Stamford Bridge. It's the right. first time that they've met in the FA Cup since the nineteen seventy final, Ooh. which is obviously one of the the most famous uh, as a kind of bloodbath. You, you might remember David Ellery re-reviewing it in 1997 and saying that there would have been six red cards and 20 yellows by 1997 standards. Um, so I would expect that to be very feisty and also incredibly difficult for Chelsea, not least because Leeds played on Friday night and Chelsea played on Sunday. But Leeds right. are a breathtakingly good team at the moment. And yeah. That's happening on Tough Wednesday one. night, fifth round of the FA Cup. Mm. Uh, all the games taking place this midweek. Uh, Liverpool, Wednesday night, are going to be up against Southampton, who actually lost this weekend but have been in terrific form mm, of late. 
not so of late. Oh, no? Uh, generally, yes, they have been in terrific form, but uh, they're just having a little bit of a wobble at the moment. Wobble. So I think they might rotate as much as Liverpool do because oh, okay. they're starting to lose touch with the top two in the Championship. I see. All right. Well, you can hear more from Matt about Chelsea on the Straight Out of Bottle Jobs, sorry, Cobham <laughs> podcast. That's, That's going to be a riot tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. Uh, ooh, but do just, tune in, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just before we move on to the Premier League. Actually, no, let's move on to the Premier League because the other game on Sunday, Daniel, apart from the fact that Jack Robertson and Vinicius Souza came to blows uh, and Paulo Sarabia scored a single goal, which got three points for Wolves. Anything else we should know about Wolves 1, Sheffield United nil? Yeah, what that was really interesting to me is that the Molyneux crowd in the last 20, 30 minutes were really, really angst-ridden. It's almost as if they can't quite believe what's happening this season under Gary O'Neill. And so if something goes wrong, everything falls apart. They were kind of moaning about the playing out from the back. They were moaning about the pressure they're inviting themselves. Sheffield United are have improved. I know that everyone will laugh at that, but they've had more shots on target than their opponent in three of the last six Premier League games. They had more shots on target than Wolves did. They had good chances. But Wolves hung on and Gary O'Neill in his post-match was just kind of very relieved, but just sort of saying, look, we need to find other ways to win. You can't go and roll over Tottenham at Tottenham every week. You have to win ugly if you're going to finish in the top half. Wolves are now eighth, which is an absolutely astonishing job. He is unless Liverpool go and win a quadruple. He is manager of the season at the moment, I think, um, because, yeah, they're winning always. They are they are better than they were a year ago with a manager that kind of fell into the job eight months ago. So good on him. Extraordinary. Very good. Well, we'll catch up on uh, the other Premier League news after this. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. This weekend in the Premier League, well, Daniel was just mentioning Wolves won Sheffield United nil, which was the only game on the Sunday. But Saturday saw Oliver Glasner having a winning start at Palace, blowing past 10-man Burnley 3-0. Aston Villa got their first home win this year. 4-2 against that Nottingham Forest. Down on the coast, Man City continued their Bournemouth beating streak. That's now 14 straight wins against the Cherries. While it took until the 95th minute for Brighton to salvage a point in their clash with a feisty Everton. 1-1, that one ended. Everton now without a win in nine matches. At the Emirates, Arsenal got their revenge on Newcastle and a sixth straight league victory too with a 4-1 win. And then there was Manchester United-Fulham. You'll recall that United had won five in a row before this match while Fulham hadn't won an away game since the opening match of the season and hadn't won at Old Trafford since 2003. So guess what happened here? Traore for Alex Iwobi back onto the right foot. Yes! He's done it! Come on! Come on! Come on, Fulham! Come on, Fulham! 
Man United 1, Fulham 2. So how did Marco Silva, without the player that we called on Thursday his most irreplaceable, become only the second Fulham manager in more than half a century to win there? Yeah, uh, obviously we're going to get on the, the, the inevitably to Manchester United, but Fulham uh, were before Joao Polini, obviously the central midfielder, before Willian, who's been a really key player this season, and before Raul Jimenez up front. So this is a squad who, yeah, they didn't have a lot of injuries, but they're not the biggest squad, and and, it, and they came here in the 1-2-1, and you'll see everyone has said that they've thoroughly deserved this, albeit it was a 96-minute winner after Harry Maguire equalised with a minute to go. And actually, at that point, United were sort of throwing the kitchen sink um, at Fulham, and they managed to just about hold firm. And it was a really good winning goal in terms of the breakaway. Not so good from a Man United perspective, because Maguire and Christian Eriksen both had pretty presentable opportunities to stop Adama Traore's uh, surging. Adama Traore? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's the... With end products as well, I've I'm, I'm, forgotten that he'd gone to Fulham. Yeah, he hasn't. He hasn't really, as far as I'm aware, anyway. He hasn't really done too much. He hasn't stood out, but he came on to the substitute here and he did what Adama Traore does: was right. on this really long, really quick run um, against um, opponents who were slightly tiring. And yeah, he set up the winner for Alex Sabobi. It was a really nice finish. Calvin Bassett opened the scoring as well for a pretty good finish for Fulham. But again, this is from a Fulham point of view. I've watched him quite a few times this season, and they're just. They're a reliable team. You kind of know what you're going to get from them every single week. They're they're just always well organised. They're I, always I thought good. they were wildly unpredictable. Don't they? they sometimes you know they'll, they'll beat they'll beat people five nil and then fall apart to Burnley then not Sheffield United the next. They, they, they've had well, they might have one or two dodgy results, but they're not a team who you ever think are going to get dragged into a relegation. Right. And, when, and when you look at the at the squad that they have and the, certainly the, the eleven that they had out. Uh, yesterday, you, you don't automatically think oh, that that squad should be comfortably mid-table, which is which is what they are. And Marco Silva has done a really good job there. Obviously, he he went there when they were in the championship. But he won that at a counter, and last season they finished tenth. And everybody was predicting them to go down before that season. They got to the quarterfinal of the FA Cup, and they actually could have won at Old Trafford in that quarterfinal up until mm. the multiple red cards. That was that the meltdown one, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this season, of course, another semi-final in the in the League Cup, and and again they're they're just safe from relegation, and they're just in this in this game. I thought I just thought they were very impressive, just in how they went about it. Okay, and this is a team that had Mitrovic pairing them last season. He's gone. Mm -hmm. They got William, who I think most clubs thought was done and dusted. Raúl Jiménez, same. Uh, Palinha, they managed to hang on to, but I mean, it is a remarkable job. The the position he's got them into, no? I think, yeah, I think, I think, I think part of the reason why this isn't really talked about more is that, well, firstly, because it is Fulham, and Fulham are not the biggest club in the Premier League, mm. and, and they're not, they're not. It's not even somebody like a Brentford or a Brighton who are maybe a bit more sort of exciting from neutrals because or they haven't novel. been, yeah, because they haven't been, they haven't, they haven't really been in the Premier League very much. And so, oh, this is a new club. This is a bit, yeah. is a bit different. Whereas Fulham don't really seem to be particularly fashionable, it's fair to say. And neither does Marco Silva. I mean, like after. What happened at Hull and at Watford and, and Everton, mm. and like it wasn't like he'd ever done a particularly bad job, but I think people had just sort of gotten used to him a little bit and thinking, you know, he's been about a little while. There hasn't been anything spectacular. He goes to Fulham, and of course they go up to the Premier League, and it's sort of just been constant progress despite continually losing those key players. Because I mean, we we did speak of Fulham and Mitrovic as being oh he's probably more important to, to them than any other player might be to any one club in the league, and he mm. goes and. They're pretty much still the same. So yeah, I, I think I think that deserves a mention. Um, of course it does. But from Man United. Ah, uh, here we go. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so it was two one. But as you were kind of hinting yeah. before, it could have been a much bigger scoreline for Fulham. It it could the have number been. of chances they had. Yeah, huh? no, it was pretty incredible. They had a lot of half chances. They had a lot of shots that 
that went close. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there was any guilt-edged opportunities. Okay. It was. It was one of those games where it sort of looked for a while like they were always going to score without really creating Fair anything. Yeah, it was, it was, this United game was a little bit different from the Luton one the other week, where it's a bit more of a end the end encounter. This this was very low key, and you could you could sense straight from kickoff that without Rasmus Hoyland up front, and what Eric Tanhag did to sort of navigate uh, his absence was to move. Marcus Rashford centrally to move Garnacho from the right to the left and then to bring in this uh, uh, academy graduate, Omori Fortune, who, who's actually very, very highly rated at United. Um, Name me an academy graduate who isn't. Anyone well, that you hear about is always highly well, rated. I, I, There's I, no I, one who's like, we think he's going to be a solid 6 out of 10 player for us over well, the I'd, 10 years. I'd, I'd actually been speaking a couple of months ago to, to a couple of people who were involved in, in youth football at a, at, at a different Premier League club who were saying that it was because it was Kobe Minor who was breaking through. It was like him mm. and Forsen were the two from that United team who really stood out as being, they have big futures. Mm. And Forsen, who's came under place winning, but Forsen's not a striker. He's a he's a sort of wide midfielder who who sort of likes to come in and interchange play. That's, that's more the player he is. So he's he's more depth depends from the left and the right. I'm not sure why he started in that position against Fulham. And he didn't, he didn't really impose himself in this match at all. Um, he actually, there was a sort of rash challenge in the first minute or two and Eric Ten Hag was over saying, like, you need to calm down because he was, he was very worked up. Um, and he has never really imposed himself and it was difficult. And I pointed out before this game that whenever United has started the Rashford, Hoyland, Garnacho attacking three in that order, left to right, they'd played eight games, had won seven of them. They were scoring at a rate of three goals a game. And of course, we've, we've spoken at length about their lack of control. They're, they're a bit of a mess. But with those three up front, they were, they were genuinely a goal threat. Mm. And they always have a chance when you've got those players on. But without Hoyland, you just don't have a striker because Martial's it's been out for so long. There's there's no replacement, and by doing that, then the other two players are also moved out of position, and the right. whole thing just falls apart. How long is Hoyland out for? Uh, two to two to three weeks. Okay, so he won't be around next week for say the Manchester derby with Manchester City. So uh, Adam Crafton very uh, kindly compiled the shots against Man United tallies of late. 16 for Tottenham, 17 for Newport, 16 for Wolves, 22 for West Ham. Villa had 23, Luton had 22, and Fulham. Uh, on Saturday had 17. How many do you think City are going to get? <laughs> yeah. well, the, and, and after the game, kind of, Ten Hag was sort of saying, well, you know, you need to look at the bigger picture because we've got injuries and yada, 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 like anybody hasn't at the moment. And you kind of think, hang on, I remember the opening day of the season when you played Wolves with a back five of Onana, Wambasaka, Shaw, and then Varane and Martin as central defenders, which is probably their first choice back five, maybe not Wambasaka anymore. And they conceded 23 shots then. This has been happening all season. They... They're on course to concede, well, they're conceding 15.9 shots per game at the moment. So they're on course to, to have the third worst record in the Premier League behind Sheffield United and Luton. Like This is not a, oh, this is a nagging issue. This has been a problem all season, whoever's in defence. And it's because there's absolutely no structure in the midfield. They, they don't press in the front. They have a deep defence, which leaves about 65 yards of space for not particularly mobile midfielders to cover. So Casemiro looks like he's drowning and Eriksen doesn't look like he's doing anything. Amrabat I've completely forgotten about, but he didn't really add anything. There's just is there's nothing that's going to fix that. You can't just say, oh, well, when we get players back, suddenly we'll find a midfielder with six legs to cover all that ground. It doesn't work. Mm. Also on this weekend with Liverpool, without Mo Salah and everybody else still get, getting a cup win, it's not the best one to trot out your injuries did for us excuses no Mm. and it's also not the time to say oh you need to look at the bigger picture because if you zoom even a little bit further out than Ten Hag would like you you see a a new minority owner with 
ambition and making new appointments and wanting Manchester United to move in the right direction. And look, the reason we last few weeks we've slightly caveated their decent results is that we've kind of said, well, we don't really know whether they're making it happen or if it's just sort of happening because they've got better players than the team they're playing. And they come up against someone like Marco Silva, who always has a very organised structure, always is prepared to change the way that Fulham play, depending on the opponent. And he clearly looked at the game and thought, if I bring on Andama Traore here, Manchester United have shot in midfield and I'll just let him run. And that's exactly what he did. It was Traore's first Premier League assist since a year ago. He's had an absolutely rotten year with injuries and a move not working out. So I kind of, I think it's a better Premier League when Traore's running at players mm. and causing mischief and sometimes overhitting a cross and sometimes not. So I was glad to see that. Uh, Man United have FA Cup action as well this midweek, don't they? Who have they got, Matt? They do. They'll be at the world-famous City Grounds on Wednesday night, a tune-up for, for the Manchester derby at the weekend. I mean, that could be anything, Forest, Man United, because Forest also allowed a lot of shots on their goal <laughs> this they, weekend. Right, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. All right. That was the game with Villa 4-2, as we mentioned. All right, we could talk about that now, if you'd like. Or, or we could move on to the teams at the top not including Liverpool, who are off on League Cup duties. Well, Aston Villa are a team at the top, aren't they? Well, That's yeah, the thing, yeah. you see. Mm. And some distance clear of Man United also harboured top four ambitions. Eight points now the margin between Villa in fourth and United in whatever spot they are. Sixth, OK. That is some kind of European spot, but not the one they'd like. Fifth, potentially could be, depending on how well English clubs do in Europe this season, because if it's better than other nations, then it'll mean that... Premier League gets five clubs in next year's revamped Champions League. But that notwithstanding, how good were Villa, Matt, on Saturday? Oh, well, they got a big helping hand in the first half from Forrest, it's important to um, to say. Leon Bailey was, was particularly brilliant, though. 11 goals, nine assists for him this season. Kind of symptomatic of what happens when Unai Emery gets to work with a player mm. for a prolonged period of time, I think. Uh, it's good to see that Villa have got their mojo back at home because it would be so brilliant if they got into the Champions League one of the many unpopular opinions that I've proffered on this podcast uh, in recent years was that Villa can do without the Conference League and they ought to not put too much stock in it and play 17 games and knack themselves out and maybe not get in the Champions League. And I think that drawing Ajax, albeit Ajax are not the force that they once were, uh, I think if they were to be eliminated, that would not be the worst thing for them in terms of making it into the Champions League. But now you're at the good bit. Now you've done all the hard work. It's you might the well Conference enjoy League, it. James. I know it's I know it's relatively new, and I know it's a trophy. And if you ask West Ham, they'll tell you it's a major trophy. Yeah. If it was Forest, would you want Forest to not not to go out against the kind of faded Ajax and, and miss out on the the nice <sighs> bit at the end? It would be a really tough decision. Mm. I think if, if I was in Aston Villa's <laughs> position, I might... I mean, it'd be a lovely decision. Let's be perfectly <laughs> yeah, clear about that. And it's not one that I'm going to have to make. So, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can say anything I like here, can't I? Yeah. Um, I think if you, to use Daniel's phrase, if you zoom out, out a bit and look oh, at yeah. Aston Villa and how they want to be over the next five years, yeah. if they're a Champions League club, then that allows them to move on massively, know, doesn't it? And like, they'll always have to, you know, I know you what you're going to say. You rationality into being a football supporter, otherwise you just, you'd, you'd stop. I think, I just think that in five, ten years' time, right. winning the Europa Conference League is not going to be seen as well, a particularly we'll massive thing. I also think that it's terrible for that competition if it's just going to be dominated by Premier League teams from the middle third of the table. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's an unpopular well, the opinion. The Conference League's only got one. 
It's only got one. The Europa League stuff with Premier League sides. Uh, yeah, but if an English team wins it every year, oh, then that's no mean, good, is yeah. it? It's, it doesn't doesn't really work for anybody. I, if I was Villa, I'd be really desperate to get into the Champions League, have access to a whole new bunch of players that you can buy. You've got one of the best managers in Europe, probably. Right. Why not see if you can kick on and, I don't know, maybe... They, they're currently having cake and eating it because they are in top four and in the last 16 of the Europa Conference League. They do have Spurs quite quite close behind. I, th- I, th- I think in that argument, if you're a fan, you want to win the trophy, right? Yeah. You always want to win trophies. I, I think it's different. Maybe it's different if you're at, at a board level. We need to get the revenues up. We need to become sustainable with that. But yeah, fans want to win trophies. When, yeah. when yeah. Forest were in the Football League trophy, I couldn't wait for them to get out of it. And they duly did fairly right. quickly and still didn't get promoted anyway. So yeah, that kind of um, kills my argument. It, as I say, it's not a popular opinion. I just think that maybe they could do without it. Certainly as we get further down the stretch of the this season it's a team who've, who've lost players for significant periods to serious injuries anyway if that happens again if Ollie Watkins breaks his leg against Ajax ah, okay well you know touching the Steve Watkins segueing into Watkins yeah. slightly I was really surprised to see he's now level but he's the top assist provider in the Premier League it's mad. I mean, talk about the reinvention it kind of started with Emery saying, look, we just want you to be a penalty box poacher and, a, you know, just be there. And because of that, he's now playing. He's got this really weird thing where the, the quality of the chances he creates are incredibly high. So I think there's like 23 players who have created more chances than Watkins in the Premier League. But nobody's provided more assists because basically he's in the penalty area. There's about four players steaming towards that penalty area from midfield every time Villa get the ball. So he just sort of acts as that still point and just lays the ball off to someone like Douglas Ruiz to score. It's... It's a wonderfully effective tactic, and he's also scoring goals. He's on 14 now Brilliant. in the league. Forrest did get two goals here and made it a little bit nervous towards the end. Yeah, Forrest are really good going forward, but okay. the, the problem that they've got is that they don't seem to be able to defend, and, and Nuno Espirito Santo made, and it's easy to say this in hindsight, but a strange decision to put Musa Niakate at left-back in this game instead of Harry Toffolo. So Nuno Tavares has been playing left-back for Forrest. He was unavailable for this game. Toffolo was on the bench and I think came on, uh, but as I say, hindsight, brilliant, but you would have thought that putting a natural fullback in there might have stemmed the tide a little bit. Maybe it wouldn't. And, and by half time, even though Forrest get the goal back, Nuno essentially thinks maybe this is not the game for us, makes three substitutions, doesn't think that he can risk Taibo Awani, who is so essential to, to Forrest and, and their hopes of survival. And yeah, they, they get another goal back. Then they have a decent chance with Elanga to make it 3-3. But it gets away from them and, yeah, same old questions. have got to do something about this away form. The home form's not been good this season. Are you home or away to Man United midweek? Home to Man United and, mm. I, and again, to totally contradict myself, I'm not one of those who would say we can do without the FA Cup because we're <laughs> deep into that now. Um, but, you know, it's clearly not the priority for Forrest. But the problem that Forrest have got is the same problem that Everton's got is that... It's not a level playing field for we don't them know. psychologically, right. certainly. We because don't know what's happening with the You points. don't know what's going to happen. Mm. I, I do find it strange it's taking this long mm. to make the decision. It's clear yeah. that Forrest have broken the rules. So give them the points deduction and we know, all know where we're standing. Because, I mean, if they get deducted 10 points, they're going down. There's, they won't be able to, to make up the ground there, I don't think, unless Everton get a, a further deduction. Um, Forrest got a decent run in. They've got to go to Everton, Luton, Burnley towards the end of the season. Okay. So. Well, we'll see. There's a lot of talk that there is going to be, uh, there are going to be verdicts uh, on those uh, FFP breaches uh, this coming week. Anyway, next up, let's touch on the teams at the top of the Premier League Park. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Football Content Awards International Podcast of the Year. Top three are now 60 points Liverpool. 59 points Man City and 58 points Arsenal. Woof, that's tight. And no games in hand for anybody. Liverpool had the weekend win at Wembley. Man City beat Bournemouth 1-0. And then Arsenal, who Colin enjoyed so much, had a 4-1 victory over Newcastle. So it's a truth universally acknowledged that City will put a run together and that Arsenal will fade. But when's that going to happen, do you think, Colin? Yeah, City have won 14 of their last 15 games, right? And you sort of think that run's already happened. Yeah. And they're still not top. Still not top. Yeah, and City's next five league games, okay, Man United are Man United, but also they've got Liverpool away, got about Brighton, and then that Arsenal game, and then Villa. I mean, those those five league games could potentially go one way or the other in terms of deciding are City going to win the league or not. And if if you look at the three teams at the minute, Okay, Liverpool have had injuries, but they're still playing pretty well. Arsenal playing brilliantly. City eh, seem a bit seem to be eking out a lot of results. Obviously, mm. one 0 Bournemouth, one 0 against Brentford. It's not it's not that they're playing badly. It's not that they're not creating chances, but something's not clicking. Right? It, it feels like it doesn't feel like the sort of dominant, all you know, overpowering displays that we've maybe been accustomed to over the past couple of years. Certainly last right. season, it feels like the city city team just aren't quite at the level they were. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying they're they're not going to win the league and they're not going to win more trophies, but it just feels like there's still still something not quite right. Certainly in attack, um, certainly Verling Haaland not being just quite hitting the numbers he did last season. Obviously, De Bruyne is coming back from a very serious injury, so yeah, they've they've got those concerns. Uh, speaking about Arsenal, though, I mean, they again like to play Newcastle, a team who actually. Last season, when they drew 0-0 at the Emirates, I think Arsenal had won 17 of their first 18 league games or something like that until that match. And that was a really sort of frustrating game for Arsenal. And mm. it was like, you know, is that kind of one of those moments where you think maybe maybe they can't go all the way and push on? And this this time around, it was a completely different game. They just, they just blew Newcastle away, didn't they? They just had so much um, intensity to their game. And every single player knows exactly what their role is in that team, knows exactly where all their teammates are, knows exactly what they're supposed to do. And for all that, I mean, we speak about how great they are. They scored another two set-piece goals, right? Yeah. That's 19 for the season. And that, that is just, that makes such a huge difference because set-pieces are just defined margins, right? That's that, that's not about really about how how you play as a team, how you're, how you're coached outside. These are just very specific situations and they keep exploiting them. And when you look at their, their run of results, scoring four goals, five goals, three goals, six goals um, in the last few games, it's, it's astonishing. Okay, they're the first team in Premier League history to score two or more goals in seven consecutive halves of football. That's an incredible statistic, no? Here's another good one. This one's from James Benge. He says, in the six Premier League games so far of 2024, Arsenal have allowed shots worth a combined 1.88 xG. Does that sound good? Well, perspective would be the second best defensive record in the Premier League belongs to Man City. They've given up 6.77 xG in seven games, but still. I mean, that's a, a yeah, huge there's a, difference. There's a sort of, I don't know why, but there's a sort of 
insinuation, I think, that when Arsenal do this, particularly against weaker teams, that it's that the other team has failed to turn up or has failed to create chances and it's on them. But Arsenal are just strangling teams. The, the, against Newcastle, they, they did a really clever thing where normally when Rice and Jorginho play together, which they did in the, the win against Liverpool, they kind of sit together and that allows the fullbacks to go high. But now they've got Kivior in the team, who's not going for quite as much. They basically allowed Declan Rice to run free, which then meant Martin Erdegaard could stay high up the pitch and he didn't have to be as involved in everything. He could be a kind of latent threat rather than a the very obvious kind of tempo setter of that team. I, I, I looked at the stats and Erdegaard attempted 35 passes against Newcastle. He, he attempted 118 against West Ham on, earlier this month. Like his role was completely different because Rice was basically playing high up the pitch and they were just... Newcastle could barely pass the ball out of their own half. It looked like a Sheffield United away first half. It didn't look like a Newcastle first half. I know they've got injury problems and form issues of their own, but they're a decent team and Arsenal are just absolutely shutting everyone down at the moment. There is still a question mark about the big fixtures they play, although they've they've actually been really good in them this season. But yeah, they are... In any other season, they would be frontrunners, I think. It's just been a, a remarkable standard between Liverpool, Man City and Arsenal this yeah, season. They are. I mean, they're the two points off the top. You mentioned Kivior. So it's when he came into the side uh, during Arsenal's win over Liverpool that, that this run, this kind of six-game winning run began. Is that coincidence or does he do something that they didn't have before? I think... I think uh, my theory, and, and Mikel Arteta knows a million times more about football than I do, but when Zinchenko is in the team, he inevitably want, likes to step forward and come into midfield. And I think what ended up happening is it just got a little bit busy there. So with Kirill there as an almost a nat- more of a natural fullback, I just think that allows more space for Rice to push forward himself rather than Zinchenko doing it. If Havertz is is in that team on the left of the three, he can really push on knowing that there's more protection behind him. Zinchenko's not going to be high up the pitch as well. And as I say, it gives more space for Odegaard to kind of drift and almost be that surprise option rather than being the man always on the ball. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if Kivior would be in the team if Zinchenko hadn't got injured, but it's, it's working pretty well so far. OK. Um, have Newcastle now become Eddie Howe-era Bournemouth at the back? And if so, I know this has been remarked upon a lot, the fact they were really good defensively and now they're really not good defensively. But what, why is that? Uh, the problem's at both ends, isn't it? I mean, the easy thing to do here would be to say, well, they had Loris Karius in goal. But I'm not sure that the result of this game would have been any different with anybody else because players getting sort of nowhere near their opponents. I'm really perplexed as to what's happened for to Newcastle's plan for, for world domination. I know they, they say they've got issues with profit and sustainability, which I kind of get because I feel like they don't have many sellable assets in their squad. But also, you know, they've got a massive stadium that's full every week, which must bring them in a lot of revenue. And yet here they are still with Sean Longstaff and a 17-year-old who's been flogged to death in midfield. I mean, they're, they're obviously missing Sandro Tonali, who they bought. They, they miss Joe Linton's energy so much in midfield. I mean, poor Lewis Miley is, has done brilliantly. And he's, he's probably unfortunate not to be discussed in the England squad, if Kobe Minu is, I think. But he needs a rest, bless him. He's still 17. He's played pretty much every game for four months now. And yeah, him and Sean Longstaff... If you'd said at the start of the season, will Newcastle get back in the Champions League? 
it would need that Joe Linton, Bruno Tonali midfield. It, ju- it just doesn't work as well with Miley and Longstaff. And they were they were basically outclassed by Arsenal, yeah. Speaking about the Newcastle defensive record and like to put this into perspective, they had the best in the league last season. They conceded 33 goals. They've already conceded 45 with 12 games to go. But this game, a lot of people pointing out the fact that they were playing both a deep line but also allowing runners in behind, particularly when Jorginho sprang that fantastic ball through for... Um, can't remember who then cut it back, but it was fantastic. Yeah, they they were completely and utterly overrun. But that exact same thing happened at Anfield mm. um, in that game over. So the is Christmas that period. Eddie Howe then? I'm to be honest. I tactically, I'm not 100 percent sure what's going on. After you look at the injuries, look at a couple of players coming, you look at the tiredness and fatigue. I think we spoke in earlier in the season that Eddie Howe wasn't making substitutions at the right time, and certainly in the last sort of 20 minutes of games. They sort of let a lot of games get away from them at that point. But I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago they conceded four goals at home to, to Luton Town. Mm. And they conceded twice at home to Bournemouth last week. I mean, they're just, they're just leaking a lot of really uh, good, clear chances. And it's not just on the field that things aren't exactly smooth. Obviously, Dan Ashworth's gone um, on gardening leave. But that um, that's, kind of speaks to what I was saying, right? Because he's obviously not... He's obviously got more belief that Manchester United is going to be a more successful project than what is the richest club in the world. So it just makes you wonder, I don't know, whether the interest is still there or whether they think, oh, well, we're being hamstrung by these financial rules, so there's not really much we can do about it. And, you know, Eddie Howe was lucky to get the Newcastle job, wasn't he? He got it because Unai Emery turned it down and he got it after leaving Bournemouth on the way to them being relegated. So maybe this is just as good as he can do. I, I wouldn't be entirely shocked if Eddie Howe wasn't at Newcastle by the end of the year. By the end of the calendar year anyway because just looking at their situation and looking at their ownership and seeing and understanding what is going on there it just doesn't it feels like they did overperform for a while and felt like they really had that identity of having young sort of Premier League developed players but now that things have started to go wrong and now you're talking about FFP and, and instability off the pitch and nobody really seems to know who exactly is making the final decision because I don't think Dan Ashworth thought that he had a great say and a lot of issues that that structure now feels very, very vulnerable. And if they're going to miss out in European football altogether next season, which is now looking quite feasible, they could win the FA Cup and get into the Europa League that way. They've got Black, but they're at Blackburn Rovers actually on. I think that's on Thursday, but mm. certainly this midweek. They've also got the fact that Liverpool have won the EFL Cup today really helps everybody because that shifts a Europa League place down for League Cup. Does it definitely? It? So they, seventh now is it? Because they will finish in the Champions right. League, yeah. Whereas right. if Chelsea had won it, that was obviously a lot more in the air. So, right. but yeah, I'm not sure they. I'm not sure they. I'm not sure they will finish in the Europa League spots. They might finish in the Conference League, and then we're back to the Matt Davies Adams get us out as soon. As <laughs> yeah, or or you know, be like Newcastle, concentrate on getting in the Champions League, and then finish bottom of your group and watch your league season fade away. But anyway. they'll always have that night against Paris, mate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just before we get away from this game, Arsenal, I spoke up of how great they are at the minute, yeah. how much of a run they're on. Their final five league games of the season away from home are against Manchester City, Brighton, Wolves, Tottenham and Man United. Ooh. Uh, those are five games where they are going to drop points. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's just a question of how much damage limitation can there be in, in, in that run of fixtures because that's, that's probably about as tough as it, as it could feasibly get. Um, at the stage of the season for away matches and they're going to be under so much pressure and that is also the time of the season last year whenever they 
had such an emotional charge ahead of that and so much self-belief and then when that when that sort of one thing kind of started to go wrong and there's a little bit of doubt they almost put too much pressure on themselves i think what's important now is that they don't do that obviously and they're and and also maybe that they mitigate against fatigue which was a big issue for them next season so they've got that tough running of away games their next two premier league games are at Sheffield United and at home to Brentford. So mm. you think if there's ever a time to give Bakayo Saka a rest or maybe let Declan Rice sit this one out for the mm. first 60 minutes, is Mikel Arteta going to do that? Because, you know, last season, that was one of the things that, that kind of did for them, I think. So it's going to be really interesting to, you know, we've watched his development as a coach. Is he mm. is he going to have learned uh, in that regard from, from what happened last season? All right, well, they've got the midweek off because they're not in the FA Cup. And who have they got the weekend after? Oh, sorry, you just said it's uh, Sheffield United, did you say? They are away at Sheffield United away yet, Sheffield then United. home to Brentford. And that Newcastle game at Blackburn Rivers is on Tuesday, says producer Charlie. Thank you, producer Charlie. Next up for us, let's delight in the debut of new Crystal Palace manager, Oliver Glasner. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Crystal Palace with a penalty and the chance to go three up. Three! Crystal Palace 3, Burnley nil. Saturday, a debut win for Palace's new Austrian manager and kind of the best start he could possibly wish for against Burnley, against Burnley who go down to 10 men. I mean, Burnley are are one of the most disappointing teams in Premier League history. They got 101 points in the Championship last season. I mean, you could say they made far too many changes to that squad that they had. But there's been absolutely zero evolution from them throughout the season in terms of their style of play. I think Vincent Kompany, Vincent Kompany was linked with a Spurs job over the summer. Mm. Uh, and he seems to have not got to grips with being a Premier League coach at all. And as you say, that made this the absolute perfect game for, for Oliver Glaser. I'm, I'm told that he has really embraced South London sartorially. Nike TNs and a Canada Goose jacket is apparently very much the regulation wear nice. around Croydon. South Norwood way, so Norwood, yeah. easy way uh, for him to fit in. But yeah, if you wanted a, a game as your first game as a Premier League manager, you're taking Burnley at home. Okay. I remember when uh, Roy Hodgson came in towards the well, last third of last season, the team also scored lots of goals in those matches. Uh, to our surprise, and clearly that's what Palace did here, 3-0 despite their, their injuries and that. Anything you picked out from this, Daniel? Well, I, I mean, they did score lots of goals last season when Will Hudson came in, but that coincided with the return of Eberechiezi and Michael Elise mm. of the team. They don't have either at the moment. So I just wanted to give a shout-out for Jordan Ayew, who has scored 
two well he scored two and and created one goal in the last six days and basically confirmed Palace's safety he's a kind of unfashionable footballer Jordan Ayew he's just a kind of working forward maybe he was like perfect for a Roy Hodgson team but he's a really really good strike for the ball he's really intelligent he occasionally gets frustrated I think because he gets left a bit isolated when those other two players aren't in the team but yeah he's it's his contributions that will keep Palace up this season because he's the only one that really never stops running and working for the ball it was a really funny moment on Monday night when he scored his brilliant goal against Everton and Ola, <laughs> Glasner kind of looked ac- across to to I think it was to Dougie Friedman the sporting director as if to say like oh I didn't know that this guy could do that and he he does do it. He scores. He's never hugely prolific, but he always chips in for Palace. And he's not like the glamour name, mm. but he's 32 now. And he's kind of still in that rich vein of form that never seems to dip. I really like him. Pele's son, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think... Yeah, not that one. It will be interesting to see... It might be. See. You never know with Pele. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, yeah, as soon as he sorted his impotence out, he was away. Uh it will be interesting to see whether Ayu keeps his place. So I was doing the, the Carabao Cup final uh, alongside Sam Parkin and he was at this uh, Palace Burnley game for, for BBC London on Saturday. And he said that with those two playing just behind the striker, which is what Glasner did here, that would be manna from heaven for Eza and Elise when they come back rather than Edouard and Ayu. So mm. whether Ayu is going to have to find a new role if and when both those two players become fit again, uh, it's going to be interesting, but that that system would seem to really suit um, Elise and Eze. I mean, obviously, it's quite a big if you if you can get them both back and fix. That's not something that's really happened this It'd season. Lovely, wouldn't it? Obviously, Mark was speaking about Burnley, but I think this weekend's really important. Just the fact that Ballas are now above Bournemouth and Brent, three points above Brentford as well. And the table. I think they're they're. I mean, you look at them now and they're effectively safe. I, I think I don't, I don't think there's any any doubt about that now, especially with the Burnley and Sheffield United losing again right yeah so Burnley and Sheffield United look done they're eight points from safety the four teams above them one of them looks likely to be the other one going down they're only separated by four points those four sides they are in reverse order Brentford Nottingham Forest Everton and Luton hmm all right now touched on the draw for the Europa Conference League the Europa League draw is an interesting one. We'll be getting into the draws that UEFA made uh, on, when was that, last Friday, in Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show, which will also have all sorts of things like the big goal that Harry Kane scored Saturday night and results from around Europe. Ooh, the big Sunday night severe uh, Real Madrid clash as well. But pick of the last 16 in the Europa League, would you say Roma-Brighton? Yes, please, yes. Yeah, all right. And what do you think about Brighton? Because in terms of inconsistency, are they the kind of Premier League leaders in that particular metier? Uh, This weekend, a 1-1 with Everton. Yeah, and it was classic Brighton, like 23 shots, all the ball, missed chances. They're really weird, Brighton, because they are, you're right, they are top of the Premier League's inconsistent, maddening league. And yet, I think they've probably got the most consistent player, not the best player or consistently at a high level, but the most consistent player in the Premier League at the moment in Pascal Gross, who is just a phenomenal footballer. He created six chances last week, five more this week. He he plays, I think he's played in seven positions this season. I think there's a chance of him getting into the Germany's Euro 2024 squad, which would be amazing if so, because... He is just a manager's dream. He just, you know, you know what Brighton are. They're really madly inconsistent with their wingers and their, their strikers missing chances. And then you've got Pascal Gross just play, creating chance after chance after chance. And 
Yeah, I just really like seeing him play. He's another one. He's 32. I don't know why I've got this sort of almost veteran vibe to me this week. But it, he, yeah, he is... The, the way he created that, that, that equaliser when he was kind of beat Jack Harrison three times just so we could get the best crossing position. It's just magnificent. He's also got 10 assists this year. So what is he level with Ollie Watkins? Yes, I believe it is Watkins. Uh, you're going to make me find out now, which is absolutely fair enough. Watkins 10, Gross 10, Trippier 10, Salah 9, Trippier, that's it. Neto 9. Magnificent. And Lewis Dunk with the 95th minute equal as a heartbreaking for Everton, who are now nine games without a win and right in the thick of that relegation battle. And we're only seconds away from ending that winless run against the Seagulls. Yeah, they got West Ham at home next, though, so... You feel confident about that? All right. West Ham, before their trip to Goodison, are in action on Monday night in the Premier League... And they're taking on Brentford, who, as we mentioned last Thursday, have played West Ham five times and beaten them on every single occasion. West Ham are also, of course, in the Europa League last 16. They drew Freiburg, who they've already beaten twice this season, but that was when they had Paqueta. And they don't anymore. Well, not for the foreseeable. And, uh, oh yeah, Liverpool are in there as well. And they are going to be up against Sparta Prague, who impressed... I'm getting a bit niche here, but they impressed last Thursday when they put out Galatasaray. Uh, yes. All right. Anyway, there'll be more of that kind of talk on Tuesday with Raphael Honigstein, James Horncastle, Julian Laurent and Alvaro Romeo in the Euro edition of the Totally Football Show. Is there anything about the domestic weekend that you'd like to mention before we wrap this one up? Daniel Story. No, I'm just looking forward to midweek FA Cup action. Mm. I'm going to see the, the latest ah. episode of the Maidstone Miracle on Monday evening. That's on so, Monday uh, evening, yeah. That's Monday evening, yeah. It's a kind of full programme and then I will be at the city ground for Forest Man United on Wednesday. Excellent. All right, Coventry Maidstone kicks off the fifth round on Monday evening. Matt? Uh, nothing really from the weekend. Really intrigued to uh, have a look at Leeds in the flesh mm. on Wednesday. Mm. Uh, really looking forward to that one. I think it might go all the way again extra time potentially um some good games aren't there in the in the FA Cup Wolves Brighton's really interesting one yeah as well yeah pressure off off Wolves in terms of what their expectations are they can go for it Brighton can give you any kind of result you like on any given day should be a good good midweek even Bournemouth Leicester you know, even Bournemouth Leicester, Leicester why not Leicester flying um Blackburn got a new manager might be able to trouble Newcastle big sort of mid-90s vibes to Blackburn versus Newcastle in my mind. Who is the Blackburn Rovers' new manager? Uh, it's John Eustace, is who it? has recently replaced Yondell Thompson. OK, and you've also got Luton Man City. Just saying, that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Jack Grealish will be psyched for it, won't he? He loves yeah. Canada Throat. Excellent. Uh, very good. Uh, Colin, anything? I mean, the, the FA Cup, Joe, I mean, it's at this point of the season where that's that's the narratives, right? right? For saving Pochettino, for saving Ten Hag, just there's, that's that's what teams of seasons are relying on. I think if you get through this round, if you, no matter who you are, you'll think, maybe we can win it. Maybe. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you for getting through this far, listener. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday, uh, as I mentioned, and then another one on Thursday with a lot of that FA Cup in review. For now, it's many thanks to Colin and Matt and Dan. Enjoy your various jaunts around the football this week. Liam and producer Charlie in the booth. And you, listener, thank you so much. I uh, hope you have a great time until we catch up with you again. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.